So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, Monday is the anniversary of the day Roger first publishes famous thesaurus. Then on Tuesday, we say happy birthday, Mr. Potato Head. On Wednesday, the extraordinary stories of the child soldiers who fought in the American Civil War. On Thursday, how King James changed the word of God. And on Friday, what did spam emails look like in 1978? We discuss this and more on Today in History with the retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, man fans. Ollie Mann here with The Modern Man, back in your ears for another season of 10 sensational episodes. Here's what we have coming up today. You see the image on the screen, and that's a brain. You've seen lots of brains. You've seen lots of scans. You know how to process those things, how to analyse them, and you keep that same distance with it, even though it's your brain. Meet Stuart Faramond, a disillusioned junior doctor. Night shifts, emotional exhaustion and inadequacy all played on his mind, but he was in denial about what might be killing him. She can get very, very excited about playing with a new person and that leaves one person from the couple feeling left out. Alex Fox offers up her beginner's guide to threesomes. Though, as ever, whatever you get up to in the bedroom, there's always something to learn. Plus, we have our record of the week and Ollie Peart tries out naturism for your entertainment. It's all to come on this edition of The Modern Man. But first, as at the beginning of all good magazines, and those of variable quality too, let's open our mailbag and look at your letters. Phelan has been in touch. He's a gynaecologist from Finger Lakes, New York. Uh, You you do your own joke, please. Uh, And he says, Ollie, I have finally caught up with the podcast as I wanted to start from the beginning and generally only have time to listen whilst I'm running and I just don't like running all that much. (laughs) That is very honest of you, sir. I can certainly relate. Uh, I last purchased a pair of running shoes in 1999, and they are still box fresh. Uh, I tell myself that the gym is an indoor environment, and that's why they're pristine. But um, that's not the reason. Uh, But a lot of you apparently listen whilst you are running. Ben in Westminster says he listens whilst trail running and ultra running. Now, I've looked into it. Uh, If you really are ultra running rather than just a fan of the sport, Ben, that would mean you really would need a show with a back catalogue like ours because some of those trails are 100 kilometres long. Terrifying. Uh, But anyway, uh, welcome everybody who is sweating right now and pretending to enjoy themselves. Uh, If you've never heard the show before, welcome. We are a magazine show. We test out trends, recommend music, answer your sex questions, and bring you amazing real-life stories you will not hear anywhere else. We also do this thing called Manbassadorships for those who donate to the show, and thank you to Darcy, who has sent in a glorious spreadsheet detailing every Manbassador we've ever honoured as requested. He says, Ollie, I have worked my way through your back catalogue, and from the earliest episodes there have been ambassadors for cities, regions, countries, and even concepts with full and partial territorial overlap, both intentional and unintentional. But 
But as you've already established peace in the Middle East, let's not reopen this can of worms. Uh, Quite so, Darcy, but thank you for the hard evidence. Uh, It seems I did award South Africa twice, so apologies to both of those ambassadors. Uh, And also, in one episode in 2016, it turns out, I appointed an ambassador for New York, Bangladesh and Belgium all on the same day. I don't know what I was thinking, but uh, hopefully now, Darcy, thanks to your sterling efforts, a more consistent approach will prevail. Uh, If you would like to get in touch with the show, we are at The Modern Man on Twitter, or you can send us an email through our website. Okay, in this edition, you will learn how to land a book deal by dipping soggy biscuits, you'll learn why you should keep an eye on your watch in the bedroom, and you'll learn what souvenir Alex Fox has brought me from South Korea. Let's go. Right, time for the Zeitgeist, our weekly feature in which you, dear listener, challenge one man to test out the latest fads and trends, and that man is Ollie Pitt. How are you? Enjoying autumn. Are you uh, all up to the tits on pumpkin spice latte? No, it's more the leaves, because I own a dog, right? And if dogs poo, I want to start on poo. Sure. But the leaves make it easier to pick up. So when they poo on the leaves, you have the bag, scoop up a bunch of leaves with that. A trend you can investigate next autumn, perhaps. Uh, What you were actually tasked with discovering was Jax wrote into the show and asked you to take part in the North East skinny dip whilst we were on our break. How did that go? Well, part of me expected it to be quite a sort of small gathering of people that like to sort of just get their clothes off and jump in the sea. Yeah, and was Um, the part of you (laughs) that was hoping for that your penis? (laughs) No, no, part of, yeah, no, no. I wasn't worried about that. Are stuff. you okay with nudity? Because we joked about this in the last episode. But I mean, actually, genuinely, how did you feel being tasked to to get naked? Because I would not do that. When Jacks first wrote in, and I heard about that, I did think about it every day in the lead up to doing it. Just lots of things because I've never been naked in public before. Well, you know, there's the fear of both getting and not getting a hold on, and whether anyone's offended by that. It's a genuine concern. I actually googled it right because, like, so in naturist communities. Blokes are worried about getting boners yes. when they go to nature speeches. And there's loads of advice on how to, like, deal with it. Is it the Austin Powers, Margaret Thatcher naked on a cold day? No, it's not. It's the don't worry about it. And there's people that um, say, oh, if I see someone and I can tell they're getting a bit of a, a, bit of a lob on... Mm-hmm. I'll go over and just have a chat to them. I'll have a chat to them about the buffet or like something really casual and just, and just be like, you know, don't have worry, you just calm down. these calamari rings? Yeah, oh, look at <laughs> No, these. chuck them on. Aren't they lovely? <laughs> and apparently doing that just sort of cools it down. We should explain as well that the northeast of England is not known for its um, particularly agreeable climate. So when I arrived on the beach in the morning, so we got I got there for around half past five, I think, quarter to six. Sun hadn't rised, and you could hear the drums. So there's that sort of yeah, that pagan festival bit, and then they've got the. And we should clarify for people not familiar with the northeast of England: you cannot usually hear drums. And I got down to the beach, and it was a really nice atmosphere. It was a festival atmosphere. Everybody just chatting. That you could get a coffee, something to eat. Everybody wearing their clothes at this point. Yeah, and is there any particular advice on the kind of clothes you should wear? Like, should they be easily removed, or the advice was you want to take something that's going to keep you warm because. When you take your clothes off and go in the sea, you're going to get cold. Yeah. So you want to get as warm, warm as quickly as possible. So ideally, like one of those uh, foil wrap outfits that the paramedics give you. No, it's not like you going in and you come out with hypothermia. No, it's just, <laughs> you don't. If you wanted something warm, that's the thing. That's no, what the professionals use. Some, well, some people did have like these special. I suppose I just describe them almost like a giant onesie that you could just kind of throw on. So it's like you know those towels with a hood and sleeves. Yes, a bit like that. But Were the, you speaking to anybody at this point? I was so nervous. Yeah, really nervous. And 
I found out. So I I bumped into one of Jax's friends, and he was selling some merchandise. Mm-hmm. He actually gave me a free badge. Got a pin badge. A weird thing to give out at a nudist event, I thought. <laughs> and he said, "Yeah, all you need to do." Go and find a, a flag along the front. It's got numbers on. That's where you leave your clothes. And then uh, Jax will come out the front. We'll do a little warm-up. Blow the whistle. Off you go. Gonna Blow go. the whistle. But I was really nervous. Really, really nervous. Yeah. What What was going through your head? Was it an inadequacy or was it a feeling of not belonging? Imagine going to a festival on your own. That's a little bit weird as well anyway, isn't yeah. it? But everybody there... I think felt had had a level of anxiety. They're all a little really? bit, yeah. It, that was the feeling. But they all a lot, came all, in all those people. I'm sure if I went to interview, they would say they feel more comfortable naked than with clothes on. That's why they take part in naturist events. And yet you're saying that the <laughs> obvious vibe was one of apprehension. Yeah, I genuinely a lot of the people there were doing it for the first time, and the evidence was that the that is the biggest they've ever done it. So I think in the previous years it was like 300. There there were 600 people there. Wow, that's a lot of boobs. That's a lot of bum. That they turned up in groups to supporting each other, yeah. and then there's little old me standing on my own like, oh shit. He's gonna, he's gonna get his kit off. I hope he doesn't get his kit off. They're gonna, you know. And I, I was just, and I just stood there. Let's Did you happens. rank yourself a little bit amongst the other people around you? Because I, I see, I'm not someone who feels particularly secure about my body image, mm-hmm. and yet I often, you know, when you're bored on a train carriage, play that game where I'm like, actually, I'm like medium attractive on this carriage. No, I wasn't judging that. I just thought when he eventually takes his trousers off, he's gonna have to bend over, and I'll probably see his arsehole. Yeah. I was just worried about stuff like that. No. Worried about seeing a man's bum. <laughs> I, was so genuine. I was worried about that kind of Why? stuff. What's going to happen? But you do think, like, you think, like, you want to go out looking your best, though, right? Yeah, You're sure. in your birthday suit. So you yes. want to make sure, so, you know, make sure you had a shower. Well, I thought that's what the blow the whistle was about. Yeah, don't want to go out with any gruff nuts, <laughs> yeah. sort of, you know, causing a little couple of dangleberries or whatever. You want to make sure you're going out clean as you like. Had you pruned? No, not, not, not. That That's fine. You've answered the question. I don't want to follow up. Oh, so, sure. okay. So, you were on the uh, beach. You on the beach. Off. She did a warm up thing and then she was like, right, 10. I was like, oh my God, countdown started. <laughs> Everyone starts taking their clothes off. I'm standing there in a massive river of people taking their clothes off. Yeah. I've got to do it. Yeah. So, I just went for it. And the tide was out a long way. Oh, yeah. And I ended up being one of the first people in the sea I was one of the first people there because a lot of them were quite old yeah. so I just sprinted right to the front got in it was freezing cold I mean, when you say freezing cold it's the North Sea and yeah. it was two degrees outside <laughs> I think the sea temperature was about 10 yeah. that's not warm no. that's very cold um, they had the RNLI on hand just in case somebody did sort of turn blue and collapse which right. was highly likely it was that cold but running in there it was an unbelievably exhilarating feeling. If I've never been in the sea naked ever in my life. And yeah. it was amazing. Like, it genuinely was amazing. And then people started gathering around me. Lots of, woo! The waves are much bigger than I thought. Hitting me in the face. But I was so cold and I had to turn around and get out. You turn around and see 600 naked people running towards you. That's quite <laughs> a sight. And then I had to weave through them. So I was like weaving through these people and you just see all sorts slapping about. And I was like, oh, God. Oh, well, good on them. Like when, <laughs> when I was running back up the beach, just flapping about, some bloke came right up and just took a snap of me. Been trying to hunt him down, actually, because I want to see that photo. Oh, well, okay. So just if you're the good person that took a picture of Ollie Pitt naked running out of the sea. Yeah. Send you it. poor bastard, for a start. <laughs> I don't know where to ask people to send it because I check the inbox and I don't want to see that. Maybe get in touch with Ollie on Twitter and tell him that you have No, no, picture. no, send it to Ollie. 
Uh, and my contact details uh, are available through the website modernmanwith2ends.co.uk you click feedback uh, and that is also the place to send Ollie a challenge for the next episode of the show Uh, this week's challenge Ollie comes from Cass who says hi Ollie my mum is forever trying to make me eat her homegrown kefir well, what's that? Well, we could have found out, Ollie. Yeah. It's the nature of the show. Mm-hmm. It looks disgusting, and I can't believe it's safe. Why can't somebody <laughs> say, like, oh, why, oh, this thing, my mum keeps making me eat it, and it looks delicious yeah. and it tastes great. My mum makes the best vegetarian soup in the world. I'd like Ollie to try some. Yeah, why not? No. Uh, what she wants you to try is, I believe it's some sort of pasteurised, strained, something odd yogurt. It it's like rank. It's basically like off Turkish yogurt, as nice. far as I can work out. Great. Um, Thanks, so, Cass. <laughs> so, says Cass, I'd like Ollie to investigate the mm. trend of kefir yogurt. It is genuinely a thing. Like it's on. Like you can get it in Waitrose now as a health food. Oh well, it's definitely a trend then. Um, and uh, I'd like him to make his own and taste it in front of you. Ooh, <laughs> she says in a quasi-sexual way. Yeah, that's really creepy. <laughs> well, I think we know what she wants. She wants. She wants us to taste your homemade creamy homemade yogurt. Yogurt. Yeah. Sure. Are you up for investigating kefir? I don't feel like I have a choice. We also have a challenge for you. That's right. We're setting you two this week. It's from Jim Taylor. Name rings a bell. Yeah, he is the bloke from Reverend and the Makers. Yes, Who Jim. went to the music festival with you last year. I know him. Bought um, me a vegan burrito. There we go. <laughs> Jim Taylor says, Having met Ollie last summer when he saw me playing with Reverend and the Makers, I would like to suggest a musical challenge for your little ginger genius. <laughs> a musical. I, mute, okay. Yeah, no, go on, explain. Well, you've been to a drum circle. Now I imagine you're fully versed and ready to release an album. I play the drums. This could be relevant. Okay. Um, his challenge for you mm. is to write a Christmas song. <laughs> you fan of the Christmas hit parade, Ollie? No, I hate Christmas. <laughs> well, that's your title right away, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, okay, fine. Everyone would want to hear the Ollie Pitt Christmas single. Of course I would. So the idea is, now we're, we're aware this is a difficult thing for you to pull together in a week. So that's why you have a while. The idea is that over the next few weeks, you can update us on your progress. Um, we're going to try and help you along the way and put you in touch with people who might be able to help you write and produce and actually put together a Christmas song that we're going to try and make available by the end of this series. <laughs> okay? Yeah, I um, suppose. <laughs> good. Nine weeks sounds ambitious. Yeah, well, look, if you work in the music industry and you think you can help Ollie, get in touch about that as well. Um, I think we've hit the ground running with the Zeitgeist this season, Ollie. I don't know how you feel about it. Well, I was literally running with numb feet and um, a knob out. Ollie, thank you very much. Next on the show, man fans, you will meet Stuart. It is a cracking interview. Don't go anywhere. Uh, but first, it's time for our record of the week. Each week, we bring you an extract from the song we think is going places. This is from debut singer and man fan Tim Jackson. It's called Better Late Than Never, and it's available to stream now. We are always looking to highlight your stories on the show. 
and back in August, Manfan Stewart emailed in to invite me to Bath to interview him. He said, My story is one of overcoming apparently dire situations that I would like to think could give your listeners hope and food for thought about their life priorities. And uh, having now heard Stuart's story face to face, it certainly does that. It all starts with him studying to be a doctor. He was a hugely enthusiastic medical student, but soon realised his chosen career path wasn't quite as glamorous as he'd hoped it might be. I realised that hospitals are, they're not very nice places. They're, they're smelly, there's no daylight in them. Nobody's really happy to be there. So yes, you're the doctor and you're the helping people. You go along and you do a, a blood test or some kind of procedure on somebody. They don't really want it being done. You're causing them some pain. You're a little cog in a big machine. You don't get that satisfaction of seeing somebody come in, you help make them well, and then you say goodbye to them. When you work in a hospital, you're a small part on that person's journey, and you don't know what happens to them after, after they leave you. And when they leave hospital, you don't know, did they get better, did they stay well, or did they end up in A&E again in two mm. weeks' time? So, I often think that when I watch those documentaries, you know, 24 Hours Inside A&E or whatever it is, that actually, for it to work as a kind of entertainment format, the TV production company have to put captions on the end saying what happened to everybody, even if it's bad news, even if they died. It has to say, because the audience need to know. But of course, the doctors in the real situation, they don't know. No, they don't know anything. And you don't know if you've done it, made a good decision or not. You no, you could have bugged it out. Know, did yeah. I help them or did I kill them? Yeah. And it's really hard. And I have huge respect for my friends who are still doing medicine. But if I'm honest, I wouldn't have left... But I didn't particularly enjoy it. And there's crappy shifts. You do night shifts. You're emotionally exhausted at the end of it. And you feel quite trapped in many ways. Because people's perception of what being a doctor is very different to what it is being a doctor. And I think when anybody steps down from a job, especially one that is as esteemed as medicine, you realise how much of your identity is in your job. So you have been known as the doctor. The next door neighbours know you as the doctor. Your family is really proud of you that you've become a doctor. And in many ways, when you're going through medical school, you can't escape that. You're quite trapped because you've invested so much in it. And then midway through, I think it was in the, in the third year, I realised, actually, I don't like the job very much. This isn't, this isn't really for me. And I remember there were... A couple of friends I knew at medical school who were brave enough to make that decision to leave. And I remember chatting with them and I thought, why? You're, you're mad. You've put so much into getting to this point and you're going to throw it all away when if you just stick it at it for a couple more years, it'll probably be better and you'll get paid and you'll have all the perks of being a doctor. But actually, I secretly envied them a bit. They had the guts to say, I've seen enough. This isn't a job I want to do the rest of my life. I'm going to leave now. And what did happen to you? Why did you stop being a doctor? Unbeknownst to me at the time, and as a consequence of being trapped in this job, and being probably quite miserable, I developed an eating disorder. And a consequence of that was that I was obsessed with exercising. Hold on, when you said unbeknownst to you, you had an eating disorder. Yeah. That's something I struggle with. I thought most people who are... Or were you anorexic, bulimic? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anorexic would be the best description. I thought most people who were anorexic, I've read, 
uh, tend to be quite intelligent people and mm-hmm. therefore aware of what they're doing to themselves and with themselves, but you weren't. Yes, it does tend to attract people who are um, very driven and classically uh, it's bright girls has been the stereotype. Yeah. Um, I think if I was honest with myself, I knew I had a problem, but much like an addict who has a gambling problem, you choose not to think about it and you live in denial. My way of coping was to eat as little as possible and to exercise as much as I can in the belief that I could be super thin and fit and athletic and achieve the perfect body. Where did that come from? It started in medical school and I can just about trace back to what it was that started off. I was doing the clinical rotations so you've spent the first couple of years and you're mostly in lecture halls and then the year three four five you've got most of the time in hospitals and you go off to hospitals and you spend lots of time on the ward trying to learn stuff um chat with patients try to grovel a bit of time from a doctor and say can you teach me something please and i wasn't doing as well as i felt that I should be doing I wasn't excelling I was just about making do Mm. Um, I was putting absolutely everything in and I still was only just managing and I felt out of control and I remember really clearly on on a ward one time I think it was a a gastroenterology ward um, for your information (laughs) which is kind of all your gut stuff And there was a woman at the end of the row of beds, a big woman, who was sat there eating a packet of crisps. Mm. And the consultant who was with us, with this little uh, entourage of eager, um, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed medical students, said something to the effect of, look at that woman who's just greedy and can't control herself, and she's killing herself. And somehow... That planted a seed in me in that getting overweight was failure. And if you were overweight and you were unwell, it was because it was your fault Mm. that you were undisciplined, that you were were just a bit rubbish. It's perverse. I mean, when you examine the anorexic's mind, it makes no sense. There's no logical sense. But I found that if I could control what I was eating... If I could only eat, quote-unquote, healthy food and prove myself that way, and I could be a bit fitter than other people, if I could be a bit slimmer than other people, if I could be more self-controlled than other people, then I could succeed in that. And what was your daily approach to food then? You'd be doing a long shift, would you, having eaten a couple of carrots or whatever? (laughs) Not far off. Uh, So I would just have boiled vegetables and fish or something without anything on and and just exist off that and like when you lose weight it's kind of as a bit of a thrill or you're uh, exercising and you find you lost a bit of weight you can run up that hill a bit faster you get that certain burdens that certain thrill out of it and you almost get addicted on that and you're searching for it it's the same way that what's wrong with somebody going and having a couple of drinks in the pub it's 
you know you feel good you socialize with people there's there's good things to say about it what on earth makes somebody want to drown their sorrows and drink so much that they're falling asleep on a park bench every night and they've destroyed their home life and their relationships and their job it's because it gets out of control you get addicted to this 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 feeling that you never really quite get you just lose all sense of balance and you slip down this spiral of being utterly out of control and then the fear gets you the fear of stopping but you say you didn't at the time diagnose it in yourself as anorexia to what extent was that because you're a man do you think if you'd been a female doctor you'd have more readily been aware of eating disorders being a thing you might be susceptible to yeah I would say definitely. I was also fearful of that stigma. A man who's got an eating disorder, that's kind of a bit embarrassing, isn't it? I had been struggling with fatigue, exhausted the whole time, terrible energy levels, terrible sex drive, which is pretty rubbish if you're six months into a marriage, and went and had some tests done, GP, and found out that my hormone levels were all out of kilter. They're all really low. And they sent me along to a hormone specialist. And she said, okay, I think this is because you're too underweight, that your body has just shut down. And did you think that too? Did it By that point, did you think, I've got anorexia and that's the reason? It was obvious, yes. Yeah. I knew that I had been over pushing myself to be cycling 30 miles a day and trying to live Fuck. off. Uh, if, if anybody knows the West Country... I was cycling to Bath and back every day, best part of 15 miles each way. And and going into Bath is very hilly. Yeah. Anybody who knows anything about sort of body fat percentages, I discovered after all this had happened, when I was starting to recover, that my body fat was about 2.5%. And that was after I'd been recovering. And 5% is dangerously low. People, bodybuilders get down to about 5% mm. when they've got to, when they go on the carb cutting and all that stuff um so it was just ridiculously underweight and unhealthy and there was this implicit thing between me and the endocrinologist the hormone specialist the the consultant that we both knew that i was suffering with some kind of eating disorder but we didn't want to say it (laughs) because that's not the sort of thing you want to have written in your notes and so it was just said i think it's because you're just a bit Underweight, and you might have been exercising a bit too much. Um, but what we need to do is we need to make sure that the pituitary is okay. And the pituitary is a little gland right at the base of the brain, and it controls lots of hormones in your body. And sometimes, when you have lots of very low hormone levels, so I had very low testosterone, uh, very low thyroid hormone, you it can be because there's a problem with the pituitary, and the only way to look at it properly is to do uh, an MRI scan. So actually, if it hadn't been for the fact that you were a medic and trying to avoid that being on your notes, a GP might have said to you, look, mate, it's obvious you've got an eating disorder. Here are some therapists you can speak to. And you'd never have had the brain scan at all. Quite possibly. I think that because my hormone levels were, were so low that I needed to be seen by a hormone specialist just to rule out anything else. And um, because several of the hormones were low, you have to then have an MRI scan done. At least a thorough professional should say, we need to just rule this out. Okay, so it's, it's obvious, 
that's because you're ridiculously underweight and you have no body fat on you. Mm. Um, but we don't want to miss something more serious. So we'll go through the motions of scanning your brain, which we did. I had done in, in work time, which was kind of convenient. So I went off and had a scan for 40 minutes and then carried, went back off to work again. And later on in the day, um, I thought, I'm going to have a look, see what my brain looks like. Because, well, it'd be great to print it out and stick it on the fridge at home. And right next to it, this is the brainiest brain in Britain and put it on the fridge. So you went unescorted and looked at your own photos? Absolutely, yeah. I was I logged in. I wanted to see what my scans were. And I'm scrolling through, looking at it. And what's that? There's this weird kind of cotton wool ball-looking blob on one part of my brain. And I went away that evening thinking, right, I'm not a radiologist, but that doesn't look great to me. And sort of came to the conclusion that this was something that was, this was probably a not very nice tumour. Uh, but it might not be. And so I need, you need to have professional to, you know, somebody who's seen these day in, day out to actually give you the, give you the final word. But the next day um, I was called in to see a consultant um, whilst I was at work. And she, very matter of fact, sat down and told me in that very um, non-emotional doctory way um, because she was talking to another doctor do you yeah. think yeah yeah because she was talking to another extra doctor extra detached no bedside manner yeah um, how did she tell you what did she say she said well I've had a look at your scans and I've had a chat with the radiologist and we both agree that this is a a glioma and she was assuming that I knew what a glioma was off the top of my head, but that was something that I did years ago in medical school once. I was thinking, all right, okay. And as all doctors know, is that you never let on when you have no idea what you're talking about or what somebody else is talking about. You, you smile and you nod and you look knowingly. And she mentioned something about having to send me off to see a brain surgeon or somebody else or she, I would have to be referred on. And so you didn't really appreciate it then. I could vaguely remember that these things weren't very good. These things were cancerous and that you couldn't cure them. Um, yeah, but the whole time I dealt with myself as having this uh, kind of detachment. You see, the, you see the image on the screen and that's a brain. You've seen lots of brains. You've seen lots of scans. You know how to process those things, how to analyze them. And you keep that same distance with it, even though it's your brain. But you had to quit being a doctor. I tried going back to work uh, after the first surgery. First night at home, uh, my wife wakes up, finds me at the side of the bed, fitting on the floor. I developed epilepsy because I'd had somebody fiddling around in my brain and chopped a big chunk out. Your brain doesn't like that very much. And that's a no-no, is it? You can't be a practicing medic with epilepsy? I tried going back and I had seizures occasionally from then. The last seizure I had was when I was cycling into work. I was about half a mile away from work and I started to feel lightheaded, a bit woozy, thought, oh, I better cycle a bit harder. Next thing I know is on the other side of the road, a nurse who's walking to work had found me and called an ambulance and there was an ambulance crew there. I chatted with occupational health who were equally unsympathetic with the whole situation and attached about the whole thing. It was decided that because I had epilepsy, I wouldn't be able to continue with 
all my duties that were needed for me to get into general practice. You need to do so many hours of of being on call if somebody has has an arrest, has a cardiac arrest, and you've got to run halfway across the hospital to go and do your thing. If you have a seizure, you've just multiplied the whole problem mm. up hugely. And to be honest, a part of it was that I didn't trust my own decision-making anymore because I'd had a chunk taken out of my brain. And could I trust myself to make the right decisions? I mean, I'm speaking to you now. I've obviously just met you, so I don't know what you were like before you had a chunk taken out of your brain. Mm. But nothing in the way you present yourself suggests that that's the case. I wouldn't think anything other than here is a person, a fully brained person in front of me. <laughs> I can let you feel the, uh, the holes in my head where they've uh, been in there <laughs> fiddling around. Do you um, feel vulnerable just out and about? No. The second operation I had was about a year or so after the first, and I've not had a seizure since then, so I don't feel vulnerable. Uh, so that's been best part of 10 years I've not had a seizure. But, sadly, despite having those operations, which presumably would remove the bulk of it, right? That's right, yeah. It is incurable. Correct. It will always grow back, or invariably, it will grow back, and it becomes more aggressive over time, and it turns into what's called a glioblastoma, eventually, which is the super nasty aggressive brain tumour that, that eats away and kills people normally about 18 months, if you're lucky. And that's what Tessa Jowl um, mm. uh, died of. And the American senator who died recently... John McCain. I think he had a glioblastoma also. Mm-hmm. So that's what awaits you. But you don't know when. You don't know how long it's going to be. Could be five years. On average, it's 12 years. 12 years of life you get from diagnosis to death. Which is about what you're at now, then. Yeah, yeah. How does that feel? It's now getting a bit scary. It's now becoming much more real. Especially with um, some news I've had more recently about its progress. Because I have scans, MRI scans, every six months... And every six months I've gone in and we've been told there's been no growth. That's great. You're doing well? Yes, thank you very much. Okay, I'll see you in six months' time. And that in itself is really hard because every six months you're having to put your life on hold, or at least it feels like you're putting your life on hold. Well, this could be the day I'm told it's coming back. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Does life carry on or does life get turned on its head and I have to have surgery, radiotherapy, chemotherapy... And it was about eight months ago that not my usual consultant was uh, sitting in. She opened the notes and saw the report that said, no growth seen on the scan, carry on. But she took it upon herself to, rather than just say to me, there's been no growth, goodbye. She decided that she'd look back at the previous scan and then the one before that and then the one before that and the one before that, and she realised that when you go back two, three, four years, there has actually been slow growth that's been going on. But because every six months it's so tiny that nobody's picked it up, mm. I've been led to believe that my tumour has stopped growing and that I've been really lucky and that they managed to get enough of it out that it would never come back. About two weeks ago, I had the most recent update. Uh, saw the oncologist... He said that you're looking at having further treatment uh, in the next two years, sometime in the next two years. 
But it's the unknown of this thing, this little ticking time bomb, if you like, is a kind of a fair enough analogy of this thing in my head of when is it going to be? And he doesn't know when the right time is to have the operation. And I'm quite cross, and we both are quite cross, that we've been told the whole time there's been no growth just because a consultant never bothered to look beyond what was written in front of him. You could say it's the radiologist's fault for not looking back over older scans. You could say it was his fault. You could say that it's been great. We've lived in bliss of believing that I've been utterly cured and I've been really lucky. But that doesn't somehow seem right. So uh, we're now looking at, although I get to decide when I should have treatment, and I could just say no, I'll wait till I get some nasty symptoms before we treat, or we go ahead with it. At some point, you have to say, okay, it's getting quite big, it's probably a good idea to cut it out. There is no good evidence, one way or the other, to say we should cut it out now, we should wait a bit. They just know that if you cut it out and do all the treatment, people tend to live longer, so better do it at some point. Uh, so that's where I am at the moment, and that's a really horrible place to be, really horrible place. What's the most horrible thing about it? Because you've lived with it over your head, if you like, mm. for over a decade now. Mm. What's new about this? I think when you're 25 and you're faced with your own mortality you see things in a different way and you reprioritize what's important now it feels so much more real and nobody people <laughs> very few people look forward to dying it's not something that i'm looking forward to and there is fear of how I will die especially there is the fear of how it will be for those people around me and the knowledge that I'll be leaving my wife behind that yes I'll die and that's really not good <laughs> dying isn't a great thing let's be honest about it and when it's a tumour in your head and you're going to die by this thing gradually growing bigger and you're going to I don't know lose my marbles lose my faculties maybe I'll be lucky and I'll just have a big bleed and I'll just die like that I don't know but it's the fact that my wife will have to grieve she'll then have to pick up the pieces move on with her life it's also something, it seems to me, and this is complete pop psychology, and I don't know you, and I could be wrong, mm. but it seems to me that as someone who had an eating disorder, which basically, when you distill it down, is about control, mm. this is something about which you have no control. I mean, of all the things to impact you, you can't control this thing. i tell you what has been quite therapeutic in all of this is that after my first operation, my anorexia went into complete overdrive. Okay, so 24 hours after the operation, I'm in hospital. I've got a Frankenstein-like cut across the top of my head. I've got staples in across the top of my head. My head is killing me. They've given me loads of painkillers and lots of steroids to take the swelling down. And I go to the disabled loos and I start doing push-ups. <laughs> like, as in, and not even like standard push-ups. Push-ups where you have your feet kind of higher than the rest of your body so you're doing I don't know what you call them they incline push-ups or something like that but I was 
I was just obsessed and fearful of losing all those things I'd gained by all those years of exercising and controlling what I ate. And my head was squelching, okay? So when I went down, I could hear my head kind of squelching because there was still movement in there when I was doing it. And I knew that sort of stupidity could kill you because if I increase the pressure in my head and stuff hasn't all healed up properly, you could do yourself some serious damage. And But this thing had so much control over me, I just didn't care. Didn't care. Just bizarre how it controls your mind. And from there, anorexia went into overdrive. I wanted to control everything, control my food. You read all the anti-cancer books on mm. things you should eat, you shouldn't eat. And I developed this hugely restrictive diet. So I wouldn't have meat. I don't have fish. I wouldn't have, I didn't have certain oils on my food. I wouldn't eat low GI foods. I'd have like a, a semi-vegan sort of restrictive diet that was not good for anything at all and I did everything that I could and then about a year later I had a really terrible seizure and they rescanned me they found what looked like it regrown a little bit though they're not sure and they said well we'll do another operation and so they did that operation and thankfully I've not had any seizures since then so that was a success but after the second operation, I came to the conclusion of I've just done all this stuff and it's had subtle difference because it's come back. I tell you what, I'm going to start smoking a pipe now. And so I did. I took up smoking a pipe. We're going to go on a ridiculously expensive holiday. <laughs> so we went, on, we went on a cruise and sort of started looking at that bucket list seriously. And just thought that I don't have to be completely stupid, but I can actually enjoy life a bit more. And the eating sort of thing, that has been a really, really rocky road, kind of trying to work through that. So lots of counselling, tried lots of different kinds of counselling, been through NHS, CBT, there's a thing called CAT, Cognitive Analytical Therapy. Neither of them were amazing. They kind of helped a bit. And then eventually ended up, got to a point where it reached the crunch. I was still struggling with all these things just being restrictive lying about what I was eating to and what I was exercising to my wife and it got to the point where if it wasn't sorted out my wife was going bye bye and my marriage would be over so I went to the place called the Priory in Bristol mm -hmm. um, and paid to see a consultant privately and she was she pulled no punches at all and it just about gave me the the mechanisms in place to start to turn the tide on this obsession and terror of eating pizza, of putting butter on my bread, of eating a curry, of having fish and chips. It's only really in fairly recent times that I've been able to go into a curry house and eat a curry and not obsess about going for a 50-mile cycle ride the following day because I'd be worried about piling on an extra pound. And that is a long, hard journey and it's still something that I that I fight against and day by day work a bit at a time to break away that fear of actually okay now I'm going to try and go to this this meal in the evening and I'm not going to look at the menu ahead of time so that I can work out what I'm going to feel safest eating but I'm going to go along and I'm going to now try and challenge myself to sit down and just pick something off the menu that actually I want to eat 
not pick something off the menu that I think has the least calories in. But each of these each of these tiny steps is really scary. It's really scary. And it's not like most people think, why don't you just eat a bit more? The first thing people say to you who don't understand the situation, oh, you're a bit underweight, you need to eat a bit more, have a few more steaks, you know, feed yourself up. But it, it's not that simple. It's not that simple. It's like saying to a gambling addict, just walk past the bookies. Mm. It's this irrational, controlling demon, if you want to call it, that, that just has you. Are the two things linked? I mean, I link them in my question in a slightly clumsy way, but is having such a lack of control over the thing that could be killing you, is that linked to you then exerting control over your food? Do you think it, the two things have an influence on each other? Yes. If I've gained, as I've gained more insight, I've realised that how I see my body can be really easily distorted based on what's going on around me. So if I feel stressed some people might go and eat some chocolate cake or something that, that would be me <laughs> which might be the healthy way of dealing with it i'm not sure i'm not sure <laughs> but i would see myself in the mirror as being a fat blob i would notice that my tummy isn't completely flat and i would there would be that little thought in my side of, inside of my head that would go you just need to cut back a bit and you can be you can be a bit slimmer you can be a bit happier with yourself now I think I can recognise, I can put the link together to you're feeling out of control or you're feeling quite stressed. What you're seeing in the mirror, you don't have to think that way. You actually, you're never going to be perfect. You're okay. You're 36 years old. You're never going to be the super fit 24-year-old person on whatever it is, Love Island. Actually, you don't really want to be. Just you are you. And that's great. And that's fine. What's honest about this interview, and that's refreshing, is that this doesn't have a happy ending as such, right? You've said there's a chance your brain tumour is getting bigger and might be the thing that kills you. You've said Mm -hmm. that your anorexia is something that you're mostly on top of but is still there in the distant background. However, (laughs) there is a good thing, which is in analysing your life priorities, you did have a career change and you're now a published author. Tell me about that. Did you just go for something that you actually really wanted and, and perhaps wouldn't have had the conviction to do otherwise? Yeah, it, I'm happier with my life now than I would say I've ever been. So you sort of religious terminology. I've um, been blessed by this, although it's not a blessing to have been diagnosed with a brain tumor and all that stuff. So I've rediscovered actually that life can be can be good fun and I don't think I had that since I was a teenager before being since I was 16 between 16 and 25 I thought life was just crap and really hard work and now actually I love it I love it what happened was that I had to leave medicine and had all the pain of having to lose your identity and the status and all that stuff and coming to terms with having this ticking time bomb in your head. But I took up teaching. There was an opportunity to teach at a further education college. I ended up teaching for three years, doing uh, 16 to 18 year olds, teaching them health and social care, level three, which is an A-level equivalent course. And I had rooms full of girls who hated science. They'd come to a college because they didn't like school. And all they wanted to do was 
become a midwife or a nurse or something. And my job was to teach them the science stuff. And I loved it. I loved the opportunity to not be the dull, drab, boring teacher who stands in front of the whiteboard, but to be the guy who can make them smile, make them have those penny-dropping moments of, oh, yeah, I get that. And to see those young people change and mature over that time. And just when you have one or two of them who say to you, your classes were my favourite classes, I didn't think I'd like this course and actually really enjoyed this bit, that is infinitely more satisfying than doctoring. You have helped change that person's life. But without this ticking time bomb in your head, without this motivation, without this forced change of career, would you have been too shy to try a career of communication? I never would have left medicine. I would have just thought, I need to keep working because I need to pay the bills. And perhaps having that chunk taken out of my head, um, maybe I've lost some inhibitions because of that. Having discovered that, that passion for doing that sort of stuff, a rather bizarre sequence of events happened. One summer, um, I was working in the college. There's nobody around but, but the staff staring at computers. So I took them on myself. Right, over a couple of lunch times, I'm going to go to the science lab and I'm get, there's going to be nobody around. I'm going to get all the stuff out. going to nick the college camera and I'm going to do some stupid experiments about biscuit dunking. So we had a, a big tin of biscuits and I think it was off the conversation of which is the best biscuit to dunk. So I'm going to do some science experiments. I went down, filmed myself doing these really tongue-in-cheek experiments, uh, wrote up a science blog about it and didn't think anything more about it. And probably about 18 months later, I got an email from a company that were putting together a BBC production. Celebrity chef Nigel Slater was doing a one-off documentary all about the Great British Biscuit. And in order to fill up this hour, <laughs> believe me, it's it's a riveting watch. Sure. I've, I've never been able to watch it all the way through. It's, some people have loved it, but... Yeah, ginger Crunch Cream, I've solved it. I mean, yeah. no need to watch. But you got invited on as a, as a contributor, did you? Yes, as the science guy. So right. they wanted a little five-minute slot. Nigel goes off to the science lab and learns all about the science of biscuits and biscuit dunking. And so I did this really silly science thing, a white lab coat on, lab goggles, putting biscuits into cups of tea and timing them. And when you've done one bit of TV stuff, which I absolutely loved, I had a really good time doing it, you then get into the the safe pair of hands book in the media world of the oh that guy he's okay he can do it um i quite like what he did there maybe he can do that on our program yeah and mcvitties picked up and so they (laughs) did some science test for them all tongue-in-cheek that they then turn into a press release on a really slow news day and write a thing about the science of it and then another food company gets in touch with you and i contacted the local radio station because i said i love doing this science thing they ended up eventually getting back to me and saying can you come and do a weekly thing chatting about the science of everyday stuff and bit by bit Um, I've ended up just doing more and more of this stuff on radio and TV and I just love it. I love it. I've been so fortunate because I've not really gone hunting for it. I know people will bust the gut trying to get themselves onto TV and radio, people who really that way inclined. And I just enjoy doing it and people have just sort of got in touch with me. I've been just lucky and it's lucky that I enjoy it. And DK Books or Dorling Kindersley, 
they'd obviously read something that I'd done about food science. I've fallen into this niche of food science. And they said, oh, we've got this idea. We want to do a book about the science of cooking. Would you be interested? And actually, even when I was back at university, I had this thing about the science of food and the science of cooking. Whether or not that had anything to do with the eating disorder thing or not. But I remember at university, I had this idea of a book all about the science of cooking. And so I've now written, written a book. And that, written two. That, and I've done book two. The first one was a surprise success. I think TK... We were expecting it to do okay, but it did a lot better than they expected. And so they had me back in and said, can you do another one? So we've done the science of spice. And would you honestly say, I, I know what you're saying, it's been a blessing for this to happen. Mm. But would you honestly say, actually, I prefer my life the way it worked out than if I'd stayed being a junior doctor without a brain tumour? You know, it's funny because I would not wish on anybody a diagnosis of a tumour that grows inside your head. I think in terms of the effect that it has on my family and on my wife, I would never want this to happen. But in terms of the quality of our relationship, the quality of life in general, the quality of my relationship with my family, it's been an incredibly positive thing. And I wish there could have been another way to have got to this point. I don't want to die young. I I have dreams of being old and grey and people moan about getting old. And when I hear people say, oh, I'm getting old, I get a bit cross inside because you're lucky that you don't have something hanging over the... All things being even, you'll probably get to 75, 80 and you'll be fine. I really want to be. I want to have my joints failing, my hair going grey, going a bit bold on the top, of being the person who has to shuffle around with a frame and to do that with my wife. That would be fantastic to go on that journey with somebody. This is a real shitty, crappy situation. But even in the darkest places, there's always hope. And you never know what's going to happen. And I don't know what's going to happen. But there's, there's always hope. Dr. Stuart Faramond. And if you've been affected by an eating disorder, Dr. Stu has recommended some organisations that might be able to help. Links are in the show notes for this episode on our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. And head on down there too if you, like Stu, have a story you would like to share on the show or just someone you'd like to nominate for me to interview just click feedback still to come your sex questions answered by alex fox that's after this it's the back page it's the bit you flick to in the magazine first but we're an audio product, so that's complex. So well done for sticking around. It's the foxhole with Alex Fox. You could have just said it's the bit you flick to, Ollie, and it still would have been right. <laughs> but yes, we're back from outer space to talk about people's inner spaces, their saucy places, and the things they put in and take out of them. Yes, it's the bit about sex. Yes. Um, and you haven't just come back from outer space, you've come back from Korea. I got so heavily into K-pop 
There's quite a few K-pop tracks where they mainly sing in Korean and then sprinkle a random bit of English. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's one, I think it, it's um, NCT 127, I think they're called. It's like they, the name of like a bread maker. Well, they do a song uh, where they sample a bit of uh, If You're Happy And You Know It, Clap Your Hands, but in this sort of street delivery. Anyway, did you discover some sex stuff there, Alex? I did, mainly for tax-deductible reasons. Sure, yeah. Uh, in a variety of uh, Hong Kong <laughs> And Korean-based sex shops, and I've actually brought something with me. If you good lord, uh, if you'd like to, she's holding describe up. This yeah, you don't need. I can, I can describe this. This is uh, it's on. Your, well, I, I say I, can, I assume you stick it up your fanny. It's a wand, a vibrating wand, but in the shape of a cat's paw. Well, it was marketed. If you, that's what it sounds like. It's a plastic cat's paw, which is um, touch sensitive. So when you push down on the little uh, pillowy pad on yeah. the base of the on the base of the foot, it vibrates. Mm-hmm. And it's marketed as an abdominal massager for giving stomach massage. But I think that might be a way of getting round certain legal restrictions in Korea. A bit if more you, conservative there, aren't they? Yeah, if you market something but as a novelty. But they like to rub cat claws or... on their clit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ironically, I don't think this pussy would do such a good job on your personal puss. Um, but it's a cute little novelty. It's time for our question of sex. Uh, it has been sent in this week from a lady who wishes to remain anonymous, but says... A happily married couple that I'm dear friends with have hinted they would be interested in a threesome. Whilst I'm a heterosexual female, I do find myself attracted to the woman and I find the idea rather exciting. But this isn't something I've or they have ever done before and so, Alex, I would love your advice on how to get started. Is there some sort of beginner's guide to having a threesome? Well, the first question I want to ask here is... How good an idea is it to have a threesome with a couple who are your mates Mm. when nobody's ever done it before? What are the pros and cons here? Now, on the plus side, you're likely to be more physically safe. You're not playing with strangers. You know that these people are good folk uh, and that you get along and hopefully everyone will take care of each other and look after each other. So that's definitely a pro. This could be a really relaxed, fun thing if the relationship, if the married couple's relationship is really strong and solid and if the friendship is also really strong and solid. But there's also a risk that the friendship and possibly even the marriage could be dented if this goes wrong or if it becomes awkward. Now, the general consensus amongst the specialists uh, that I spoke to was that this kind of play needs careful management. And define specialist in this context. Is the people who look after people through sex therapy or is this people who have had a lot of threesomes? I spoke to both. I spoke to people who have had threesomes, foursomes and moresomes. I spoke to counsellors and sex therapists. I spoke to people who are involved in the kink world. So someone legitimately, if they were on Lorraine, would say threesome expert (laughs) as their caption. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't sound very sultry or exciting, I know, to say this needs careful consideration and planning but there are actually ways that you can make that part of the foreplay and make it um, a a fun thing to do as well as a practical one and most people agree that putting in that work to think really carefully about what you want and really carefully about what that couple want Mm. and how you are going to orchestrate this experience is our listener here absolutely certain that both people in this couple are 100% on board. Because if it's one person leading the charge more than the other, particularly if that charge is coming from the guy, that could potentially create a situation that's uh, very much charged with jealousy 
mm-hmm. and and envy and she might not want to get into that situation so it's very good to ascertain that beforehand. How? How do you ascertain that? I think the couple need to speak to each other separately. The unicorn, our listener here who's written in, needs to think about what she really wants. And then all three of them need to speak together uh, about what they would like from the experience, what their respective boundaries are, what they'd find exciting, what would be maybe uh, off the cards for them in advance of the situation mm-hmm. um now i spoke to a friend of mine called eunice uh eunice hung actually which is an expert excellent name when you're talking about the down belows that sounds um, like something barry crier wrote <laughs> for kenny everett well eunice is the town crier when it comes to polyamory she's mm-hmm. used to uh being in situations where um she's negotiating multiple people's emotions within sexual situations so she's a great person for me to chat to Uh, and she said a a really good way to approach this is to meet up at least a day before Mm. the session or you don't have to meet up you could do this via text or email in fact some people find that really useful to write down these things because it helps them clarify what it is that they truly desire Um, and all she said all three should discuss together exactly what's going to happen because otherwise there's a bit of a possibility that if the couple alone decide what it is that mm. they that they want, then they might go in with this attitude of, well, we've already decided that you're going to do X, Y, and Z with us, and it's harder for the, the unicorn then to negotiate matters. But this idea of the kind of negotiation being a clothes-on sexless enterprise, as you said, you know, if she goes around for dinner, a couple of glasses of red wine, they're discussing what turns them on you can easily imagine how that might actually end up initiating the threesome a bit earlier than they're ready to do so. It could end up sparking it off when they haven't discussed everything yet because they're talking about what we're going to do. It could do, and I suppose if this kind of conversation does all get too hot to trot, then that might not be a bad thing. This conversation doesn't have to just be practical. There are practical matters that you need to discuss, things like contraception. And in fact, talking about the kind of props you might need and the things you might desire gives you a little bit of advance notice of stuff that you might need to prepare. So it's all ready in there waiting for you. I don't know why the word props is funny in that sentence, but it is. I suppose because it's kind of like, it's almost like a different niche isn't it from sort of mainstream sexual point of view people are like oh should we experiment with props for a lot of people the idea of the threesome is exciting enough without thinking about props but what kind of thing <laughs> do, were you thinking of when you suggested that well if you are going to have a threesome if you're going to get three bodies involved there are things that you can do with extra bodies and extra pairs of hands and extra tongues and extra bits and bobs that you are harder to do on your own mm. for example spit roasting or usage of uh, more than one toy so if you want to fully potentially make the most of that situation then planning what toys and gadgets that you might want to bring along um, can be a, a good exercise to go through but let's wind things back a little bit you can see how talking about fantasies as well as boundaries and practicalities here could be a really sexy part of preparation, mm. right? Um, I spoke to Kathy Keane, uh, who works for the app Field, and she said that a few really constructive questions to ask of yourself and anyone you're considering having a threesome with are, for a start, what is it about having a threesome, the idea of it that turns you on? What are you looking for from that experience specifically that you can't get alone or with your partner? Secondly, is there anything you're not comfortable with? That includes sex acts, terminology, like some people like being called a slut or a slag in the bedroom. For other people, that will completely kill the mood. Um, And there are lots of different ways to play with three people. Exactly what would you like and what would not be your cup of tea? 
And she also said, remember that this communication should continue throughout the threesome and also afterwards. Now, lots of people gave me great input when it came to communication. For a start, remember that asking whether something is okay, whether someone's enjoying something, whether they need a break, uh, whether they've changed their mind about something, don't ever be afraid that that will ruin the mood. Mm. It's not the asking that will ruin. It's the doing something that then someone doesn't feel comfortable with. Mm. So keep asking those questions. Keep checking in on each other. Establish a safe word. We've spoken about this before. Safe word is something where if anybody says it, it draws play to a close immediately. Make sure that everyone knows that and that no one feels that if they say it, they're going to be considered a party pooper or a prude. Everyone should feel comfortable about uh, changing their mind or taking a break. One person actually said, and I, re- I really like this, normalise tea breaks, <laughs> which is, I think, a lovely attitude to it. Stopping and starting, like making it okay to have a little pause, to have a little rest, to chat. Normalise this idea that it's okay to check in with each other and that it doesn't have to be one long sexual experience. Okay, but a lot of this is preparatory work, which is good. I do wonder, though, if one of the things she's really asking when she says, do you have a beginner's guide to threesomes, is literally, physically, on the day the threesome begins, what's the best way to get into it? You know, she's joining a couple who presumably have a fairly established routine. What's the best way, physically, to get involved? Well, the best threesomes are when one, two, three people all come out having had a good time and when the action is shared equally between them. It's really easy for one person to get left out in a threesome Mm. uh, and that's often one of the women. Uh, If you're in a threesome where there's two women and one man, sometimes the man feels obliged to pay extra attention to his wife or his regular partner so that she doesn't feel left out and that can leave the unicorn feeling left out or the opposite can happen. He can get very, very excited or she can get very, very excited about playing with the new person and that leaves one pe- one person from the couple feeling left out. Mm. So whatever, whatever action you want to do, make sure that there is an equal balance of people being involved. Even if not everybody is fumbling and fertling at the same time, just everyone needs to be mindful of the idea that this is a, um, a shared experience. It's a collaboration. So uh, as an aperitif, if you like, the first thing that might happen should probably involve all three of them. Even if I suppose that involves one of them watching the other two, it's been discussed and they're getting off on it. Yeah, some people even uh, advocate using a timer. Annabelle Newfield, who's a tantra <laughs> it's teacher. It's a countdown approach yeah. to threesomes. Well, she says, <laughs> she says uh, pop a clock on the side and just do pay attention. Give 20 minutes to people whilst another person is an observer and then switch around. That is actually a really good question to ask yourself if you're considering being in a threesome. How do you feel about just being the voyeur, the observer? Are you okay to watch as well as to join in? It's also really uh, important to remember that you don't have to go through with full sex or you don't have to have intercourse or even get below the clothes on the first outing if you don't want to. It might just be ace to stick to first and second base. Mm -hmm. And that's a really good way of testing the water and seeing how everybody feels, what the dynamics like, whether there are jealousy issues Um, and just restricting it to that. It's... 
It means that it's easier to withdraw if things are feeling awkward. And if they feel good, you can either carry on or you can stop and treat that as a tease for next time. So don't be afraid of taking things slowly. And finally, Vic said, ladies, if you are somebody who is female and not used to playing with other women, remember to trim your nails uh, if you are going to go down to Pound Town uh, mm. on a lady's punani because mm. otherwise... Uh, a ragged, a ragged fingernail or a, an uncomfortably um, chafing cuticle could catch someone where it wouldn't be cute at all. Good advice for any of us planning on fingering a flange this weekend. Uh, Alex, it's been a pleasure as ever. If you have a question of sex for Alex to answer in next week's show, what do you need to do with it? Head on over to our site, which is modernmanwith2ends.co.uk and click feedback. And if you want to be one of these lucky, sexually experienced individuals that Alex draws upon your wisdom in the future, uh, you should follow Alex on Instagram and Twitter and things like that and join the conversation there. Yes, please do. I'm always, always welcoming uh, people who are adding constructive, compassionate, considered thoughts to these conversations. I'm at Alex Fox, A-L-I-X, one I, like Cyclops, and then Fox, like the animal. And with that, we have very nearly reached the end of this week's Modern Man. But there is just time to appoint a new man ambassador. It's Paddy, who's working in Turkey. He says, Ollie, I just want to thank you all for getting me through my shifts out here by paying the calming, English-speaking voices in my ears. I've even recommended the podcast to a couple of Turkish colleagues to help them expand their vocabulary. I hope they don't get confused about what a unicorn is now. Uh, Paddy, thank you for that. I have great pleasure in now appointing you Manbassador for Turkey. Uh, if you'd like to be a Manbassador, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or send us some beer money. Both things really help support the show. Details are on our website. Our music is by Django Django from their self-titled debut album. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill, and we'll see you next Tuesday. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.